Ladies and gents, welcome back to uh, another Engineers podcast. Today I'm joined by David Goat, who's co-founder and chief architect at Marshmallow. He's very kindly joined us today and he's going to talk to you all about Marshmallow and their mission and the business itself. But really, these guys and girls are ones that think that they're stepping outside of the norm, which I absolutely love. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But some of the subjects that we're going to be talking about today are mission of the business, challenges from really scaling up from zero people or yourself and two co-founders all the way through to 300 people. That's pretty phenomenal as well. When you think about we've been through the pandemic and we've been through really tricky times recently and some fascinating approaches to engineering. And we do actually uncover you know, some of what you're building, how you're building it. And obviously, there's no better person to ask in the business than someone who started from day dot. So, David, thanks for coming to join us. How are you? Very good. And thanks for the kind intro, Elliot. Really pleased to be here. Pleasure. Uh, as usual, we start the podcasts by always understanding a little bit more about your background, who you are, where you're from. So, do you want to give us a bit of an intro into David? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, yeah, so so I'm David, a co-founder and chief architect here at Marshmallow. Um, I guess, you know, my background is I've been a, a software engineer for the last 12 or so years, um, typically working in, say, smaller early stage companies that go through that first bit yep. of scaling. Um, always really enjoyed that part of the journey. I think there's a lot to learn, um, some very fascinating things and challenges you pick up along the way as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, I've always been really fascinated by the engineering space, particularly, and I guess the sort of tech startup scene. Um, and I think we're lucky to have a very sort of vibrant ecosystem here in London. Yeah, we are. We're extremely lucky. Talk to us a little bit about the inception of Marshmallow and where that idea came from with you and two co-founders yeah absolutely um so, so we all met at a previous company we were working at together and i guess you know at the point that we were all um leaving that business and looking for new opportunities um we, we got into conversations together and uh you know i guess we, we'd identified that there were a lot of challenges actually in the in the insurance space um i guess you know at that point in time there was a lot of um focus this is around 2017 there was a lot of focus on the fintech space around london um, and we saw a lot of parallels with the challenges that were happening in the insurance area so you know maybe huge incumbents very large market um perhaps they were you know struggling to disrupt and to innovate from a technical perspective perhaps they weren't necessarily as customer centric as people would come to expect of their banks for example um, so there are a lot of parallels there. And, and I guess when we really started to realize actually just how difficult it was for people who are, let's say, you know, not the average customer, right? So this is not something that the main market insurers would cater to really, really well. Um, this might be people that have moved country or just have low credit score or just young drivers and have some sort of circumstance that makes them kind of, you know, not necessarily catered for by the average insurance company super well. Um, we were just really shocked at how much of a challenge that was for them, you know, whether it's just the really expensive prices they pay, the number of insurers that are declining them. Um, it's just a really, really difficult space for them. I can talk a bit more about that in a few moments. Yeah, we will, for sure. I think it would be a really good idea to give us some idea into Marshmallow's mission in a deeper detail, but also the product offering and really what you're giving back to some of your customers. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think one of the first things to say is, so, so our mission is that we're here to back the ones who step outside the norm. And, and what that means to us is that people who, you know, through some circumstance in their life, find themselves in situations that are different to, say, the, the average person. Um, we, we're here to really back them and provide them with financial products that suit their needs. Um, and I think like, you know, the UK car insurance space is, is a massive market. There's a near, nearly 16 billion pounds a year being spent um, through comparison websites and things of the like. Um, and there's, there's around 8 million people here living in the UK who have moved here. Um, and actually for them, it's, it's a really difficult situation, right? I mean, if you think already cost of living and, and the difficulties people face, um, if you layer on top of that people that have just moved country, they're figuring out how to get their new lives set up. And then they run into this problem that not actually all of them will have even anticipated, um, which is just how in expensive insurance is. Um, and when you think about how much it enables them to be able to get on with their lives, you know, they perhaps moved here to pursue a better life for themselves, a family, whatever it might be. Uh, they've got maybe, you know, kids to drop off at school, jobs to get to, they've got to get around. Um, and actually, you know, if you compare it to where they may have come from, so like the average cost of insurance for a small car in somewhere like India is maybe about 70 pounds. In Poland, it's about 110 pounds. Australia, 400 pounds. And when they get here to the UK, they're suddenly hit with, you know, an average price that's usually far in excess of a thousand pounds. So it's not something they've necessarily been used to from a cost of living perspective. It's generally a shock for some people. Um, and then you start to also layer in the fact that, you know, they've got to usually lay out this huge cost in one lump sum as well, or, you know, they struggle to get things like monthly payment credit. So about 20% fewer companies will actually allow them to pay monthly for their insurance because they have no credit score or a very thin credit file when they first arrive here. Um, and about three times as many companies will actually even completely decline them because they don't show up on traditional credit check databases um, and things like this. So I guess all in all, you know, it's a very um, challenging time for them. And, and, you know, I think access to financial service products is really important for people. Um, so, so that's what we're trying to do is kind of really make sure the product we're offering fills that gap at affordable price um, and is really giving people the, the value from the product they need. They can do things like pay monthly for their insurance. Um, and that's really what we're here to do. Yeah, I well and truly really didn't realize the complexity of it. Yeah, it's really challenging. And, you know, a lot of um, a lot of companies won't accept things like your driving history from abroad as well. Right. So, you know, you might have 10 years of good driving experience in the country you've come from and you arrive here and it's almost like you're being treated like you're, you're, you've come from zero. Right. You're a brand new driver who's just passed their test in effect. Um, you know, they're not accepting things like your no claims discount bonus that you've earned abroad or things like that in general. Um, you know, we've gone the extra mile to do the to do the operational work to try and make that work for our customers and accept things like your know, driving history from abroad, um, take into account where you passed your test, like which country. Um, many insurers maybe are just looking at it in broader strokes. So, you know, is it an international license or an EU license? Whereas we're going a bit deeper than that and looking at where people passed and what their driving history was, where they came from. Yeah. We've spoken about this offline and I'm really keen to to dive into some of the engineering problems that or engineering solutions that you've come to to solve some of these problems. Talk to us about that and how you've overcome some of these challenges for your customers. 
Yeah, it's been a, a fantastic journey for us and a real interesting challenge, actually. You know, none of us are from insurance backgrounds um, traditionally. You know, it's, it's, it was a, a real learning journey for us and a real eye-opener in the world of insurance and how things work. Um, I think from like a technology perspective, some of the things that have been fascinating to see, I think, are um, just how kind of fragmented most insurers' technology stacks are. You know, there's a lot of outsourcing a lot of off-the-shelf systems a lot of legacy systems decades and decades of these systems and you know huge data sets that are very difficult for them to join together and i think you know we've had some of the let's say the luxury or benefit of being born in sort of the cloud native era and being able to sort of take a more modern approach to things like using leveraging the cloud using microservices different types of databases um you know and, and hopefully building good resilient systems that are well engineered to give us the scale and flexibility we need um, and a good cost base as well, which is also important um, today. I think, you know, um, some of these challenges have really sort of come to light over the last few years as we've gone through the journey of actually becoming a full insurer ourselves. So we started off life as a, as a broker. Um, and then as we raised um, significant funding, we're sort of valued as a, as a unicorn and, and had really great investors come on board. We've been able to capitalize an insurance vehicle and become a licensed carrier ourselves. Um, and that's brought with it some of its own challenges too. Um, and perhaps we can talk a bit more about some of those as we get through the conversation. Yeah, I'd love to. You you have done some really great engineering stuff and I could list, you know, tapping into niche data sets. You've got some really bespoke data models and you've done some cool things around machine learning. So I think even just breaking down some of those subsections and really understanding that, that would be awesome. Yeah, for sure. So um, I guess, you know, we've taken an approach of um, really kind of trying to source data sets that we believe other insurers aren't really leveraging to the best effect. Um, we're really going the extra mile to do things like, as I've said, kind of validating people's driving history abroad or looking at things like um, international validation databases. Um, we've built a whole bunch of kind of bespoke models. We've got a really talented team of data scientists and pricing analysts who have built lots of predictive models, um, things around fraud, around um, the right kind of price optimization to offer people, how we can understand their risk profile in a more bespoke way. Um, so that, that has really enabled us to learn and iterate a lot more quickly. So, you know, we're aware talking to people in the wider insurance in industry that it is a real challenge for a lot of insurers to be able to iterate and use their data um, in a very sort of agile way, I guess. Um, and, you know, we're able to, to really learn from our data sets a lot more quickly than, than most companies can, I think. Um, and, you know, credit to the, the people, the guys and girls that have worked on that so hard. Um, we are able to kind of go out and release changes and experiment with those much, much more quickly. So that velocity of change allows us to have a much shorter feedback loop and learning cycle. Um, which really enables us to kind of, I guess, you know, optimize prices and, and find the right competitive level to be at um, and do things like tackle fraud, which is a, a huge issue as well, actually. You know, I think part of us trying to offer a cheaper offering for our customers and making sure it's more affordable means we have to be able to actually detect and eradicate as much fraud as we can because um, that really raises the prices for everyone. Um, and we believe that's a good technical capability of ours is the work we put into things like fraud detection and prevention through sort of ML models and a lot of um, uh, sort of validation databases we have um, and our approach to doing that um, upfront as part of the quote and purchase journey, um, we think really offers a lot of value in terms of how we can give back to cheaper prices for our customers. Um, 
But look, I think there's there's other things here as well. So, you know, using technology to drive down the operational side of costs as well. Um, so as much automation as we can, trying to build apps that allow things like a lot of self-service changes of your policy, um, you know, internal automation as well, so that hopefully our, our um, customer service staff and broad teams can work as sort of effectively and efficiently as possible. Um, all of which we really hope is is kind of leading us to a, a lower cost base and being able to actually ensure that customers can get the best value possible for their for their insurance. Yeah, and I've obviously been lucky enough to have a conversation with you prior to this and know that your ethos is really driven through the business around being product and customer centric. So I think that's so key, but understanding just how building your own technology has a been able to i think or obviously drive down operational costs which i really didn't put into context until you explained it so that makes quite a lot of sense how that compares to other insurers on the market but also you can iterate and just move so quick and learn from what your customers are doing how they're purchasing things or their buying habits but the data that that gives you I can imagine is just so important. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think um, it is it's one of the interesting learning journeys I think we went on is very early in our journeys. We were just starting out. We were speaking to a lot of people from the general industry. And I suppose, you know, the, the general advice was um, you, should, you should probably go ahead and buy some off the shelf solutions or things like that. And you know, it was something we considered for a while. We, we did look at it. Um, we kind of felt, although that it's, it's maybe appealing at the beginning, it feels like you can get started and, and you know start to get the ball rolling. We sort of thought strategically it didn't feel like the right thing for us. We were trying to build that very customer-centric um, model. We, we sort of wanted to be able to iterate from a user experience and design perspective properly. We wanted to be able to keep the data in sort of formats and structures that we felt we could leverage really well um, and sort of avoid this sort of data siloing. Um, so I think, you know, in short, we're really glad we went down this route of sort of um, setting ourselves up as a, as a product and tech company from an insurance perspective and sort of as a first class citizen within that is the technology piece, um, yeah. making sure that we're building the technology stack ourselves. We're customizing things the way we want it to be um, to best serve our customers. Um, and we think that can ultimately deliver the most value for them. Um, I think it's interesting, actually, you know, you speak about the value of building some of these things yourself. Um, I think, you know, the, the Ford CEO recently gave an interview, I think, where, where he was saying that, you know, one of the challenges they perhaps have is there's about 150 different modules on their vehicles and they're all built by different companies and they don't really talk to one another. There's 100 plus languages involved. And it's obviously a very different thing. They're talking about building, you know, the, the firmware and the software ecosystem of a vehicle. But I think some of the same sort of philosophies do ring true for other software um, ecosystems and insurance too. You, know, you look at the way that other insurers maybe are set up where they have these big data silos or systems that are really difficult to integrate together and get to talk to one another. That can really actually come all the way through to the customer experience ultimately where perhaps you know they want an update on where their claims are and they actually have to call up and be bounced around different departments or you know one system doesn't know about another system and it's just I guess it makes for a more disconnected journey which is something we're hoping we can try to solve for it and try to avoid as we go on um, and try and really make that user experience as cohesive and, and customer centric as possible. Yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, B2C products and or a direct consumer product, 
usually from a customer experience perspective, you want something now, you want the best possible experience. I, I think it would be great to try and understand, especially from a back-end perspective as well, you know, some of those challenges working behind the scenes on just how you do offer a really, really good experience for some of your customers because, you know, people usually imagine if you want to go and find an insurance quote, you want it as fast as possible, as cheap as possible. That's not technology dependent, but, you know, here we're talking about things like real-time updates. We're talking about latency of the systems and the product. Talk to us a little bit about what happens behind the scenes and maybe how you've built some of that. Yeah, no, it's a great um, question. I think maybe something that could be a bit underexposed in terms of how people perhaps think about um, insurance. So I guess um, perhaps uh, in case we have international listeners, you know, the way that um, in the UK, a lot of the insurance is, is bought is through things like price comparison websites. So people and customers can go there, enter their details in once um, and, and be exposed to perhaps 120, 150 companies, something like that that are, are all kind of able to decide if they want to offer a quote on that insurance. Um, and then, you know, if so, at what kind of price point? Um, and there's a lot that goes into figuring that out, actually. And when we talk about the volumes that this is happening at, um, there's perhaps about three and a half million quotes per week coming through these sorts of systems that we would see. Um, and there is a latency issue, uh, you know, issue there. Um, it's not, you know, real time sort of bank trading latency type issues, but, you know, you've got perhaps in the realm of low tens of seconds to be able to make all of these underwriting decisions. And that might include lots of third party database validation calls and, you know, lots of predictive models that you're running to try to figure out, could there be a risk of fraud here? What's the right price point to be at? Um, is this, you know, the, the type of customer that from a risk perspective that we think we can ensure? Um, so there's there's a lot going on there. So, you know, we've got um, millions of quotes going through these systems every week. There are some latency considerations there. There are lots of bespoke um, ML models that we've built. Um, the vast majority of it for us is running on AWS. Um, we're using systems like um, ECS Fargate, uh, mostly sort of um, Dockerized Java, um, Spring Boot microservices, um, and then into the sort of um, ML spaces. It's um, usually SageMaker endpoints for us that are making the predictive um, predictive models that we are, we're running. Nice. Okay. It would be really good to try and understand how that technology has evolved as well over time because, you know, inception point, you probably had a, a different idea of what the systems might look like. Are you able to talk to us about some of that evolution over the last couple of years? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, at the beginning that it was just, at the very beginning, myself coding away. Um, then we were you know, grew, grew a slightly larger team, and I suppose you know we had we, we were born into this sort of cloud native era, as I said, where we sort of felt that maybe going for something cloud native on Amazon with with microservices was was a good approach. We felt, and we thought it would give us the flexibility that we needed. Um, you know, there's a lot of powerful technology there that you can leverage. Gives you very good scalability, security, reliability, etc. Um, and, you know, actually an affordable price point as well. Um, I guess, you know, the earlier stages, we, we certainly had much fewer services than we have today. I guess you could say they were kind of, um, I, I wouldn't go as far as calling them, you know, huge monoliths, not that that's a bad thing anyway. Um, but I think that we, we sort of had probably quite big service boundaries at that point in time. 
um, I guess as we got to understand our domain a bit more, um, we started to decompose these these service domains and boundaries into different areas. Um, and you know, I guess we had a sort of proliferation of services from there. Um, so we, we probably started life, I think, with something in the realm of two or three services, and that was maybe the status quo for a while. Um, I guess fast forward the clock five or six years, we're, we're about sort of 80 now, um, all with sort of different domains owned by different teams. Um, so yeah, there's quite a lot of change that's come with that. I guess fundamentally, the technology stack still looks fairly similar. So it's sort of containerized Java services on the backend perspective, uh, a mixture of things like synchronous communication through REST APIs with JSON and um, uh, you know some asynchronous communication as well, um, some event sourcing and message buses and things like that. So I guess those things have evolved a lot more over the last kind of year and a half, two years um, compared to the start of where we where our journey was. Um, but I guess fundamentally, you know, a lot of the same technology stack is still there. It's just um, been a lot more evolved than where we were at that point in time. Yeah, and obviously in the last three years, we've had the pandemic. We have a larger macroeconomic situation, which no doubt will have impacts on people, especially when it comes to insurance. But Marshmallow have obviously gone from strength to strength and you've grown the business to 300 people. We have, as you said, had a lot of growth um, that has come over the pandemic and there's been some challenging times in there, um, you know, adjusting to remote work as, as lots of people had to do, um, as, well, as well as the sort of economic headwinds that have followed that as well. Um, I think, you know, insurance is a, is a very resilient ecosystem from that perspective, particularly sort of UK car insurance, where, you know, in order to drive the car legally, you need the cover. Um, so I guess there, there's some resilience there. Um, however, you know, it's not been immune to challenges around things like inflation, which affects things like the cost of repairs and how long it takes to get parts and the cost of labor. And all of these things do have a lot of impact, which is explaining a lot of the sort of inflation in, in prices we're seeing in insurance at the moment. Um, but look, I think that when we think about some of the challenges we've had over that period, certainly, I guess it was a important cultural inflection point for us. You know, I, I think we felt that we were probably at something like about 40 or 50 people at the start of the pandemic. And I think at that point in time, having all worked in, you know, very close proximity and effectively sort of one open space kind of thing, um, I guess it's very easy to see how the culture sort of naturally evolves from that, the way that we're all interacting day in and day out quite closely together. Um, and you know, we had quite a deliberate focus on our culture and values very early on. It was important to us and we did it, you know, really right from the start. It wasn't something we delayed till, till later. Um, but then actually when we started to have some quite serious growth and a lot of that was happening remotely as well, um, I guess some, some new challenges came in there, right? I mean, it was how, how do we build relationships and trust with our colleagues? How do we kind of I guess, get that sort of feeling of camaraderie and uh, and sort of, I guess, the sense of innovation that sometimes comes from having those close relationships and sort of talking with people in a less structured way where not everything's a scheduled meeting on a video call kind of thing, you know? Um, it was difficult, I think, to navigate that at the beginning. Um, I don't think we necessarily found a, a magic silver bullet or anything like that, but I think there was a lot of consistent focus on how do we maintain our culture as we go through this journey. Um, and how can we kind of try to make people feel as welcome here as possible to be able to bring themselves to work and to be able to take account of the fact that, you know, we want to kind of grow and evolve our culture um, whilst we're doubling headcounts or whatever and doing that remotely. 
Um, wasn't an easy thing to do, um, but I think I'm proud of how the team came through it. And I think we've you know hired some really good people who have also gone on to hire really good people um, that have helped make that journey a lot more smooth than it could otherwise have been. Yeah, great. I think in-person collaboration, especially for SMEs, well, any business really, I think in-person collaboration to then make that shift to fully remote and you know some businesses are toying with the idea at the moment of in-person collaboration again and return to office so i think it's been a real shift over the last three years it'd be great to get your perspective on what have marshmallows challenges been around hiring yeah i think there's been you know different um phases of challenges i suppose you know if i think back to really really early us i guess you know at that point in time perhaps we you know we didn't really have much in investment or capital and i guess we hadn't really even found product market fit at that point and um you know there's no employer brand at all to lean on and i think that obviously there you're far more reliant on trying to sort of convince people to believe in your mission and to see that there's real potential here and they can really actually solve a problem um i think you know we were lucky to find some great people who who believed in us and, and wanted to come on board and make a difference and, and really commit themselves to doing that um I, I think a challenge there is you know the pool of people willing to do that is maybe a bit smaller or just harder to find um when you don't have these other things like some employer brand or product market fit or significant investment and you know uh, perhaps what comes with that the ability to be super, super competitive at that point in time in, in the salary market, if we look at perhaps five years ago. Um, I think the challenges then changed as we changed and evolved as a company. Um, you know, if we fast forward more to perhaps what today looks like, I guess, you know, we've, we've really come out of that phase of just being that small, tiny startup that's going through a bit of early growth. And I guess we're now a, a slightly more established company who's going through some, still some scaling. Um, but certainly more mature than where we were. Um, and that demands, I think, a different kind of ethos, um, people with different kind of values, people with different approaches to doing things. Um, you know, when you get into the realm of being a fully regulated licensed insurer and you look at what that demands of us and, and the sort of rigor we give towards our customers, um, you know, it's, it's a different mindset to perhaps um, the one that you, the people you might hire on day one um, who, who just have a different approach and different mindset to building. Um, but I think, you know, it's a very competitive talent market. Um, I think, you know, we, we're competitive in that and we, we really see good traction from people we're hiring. We're hiring some really great people. Um, I think, you know, the, the challenges really, I think, are keeping people kind of really engaged in what you're doing and believing in the mission for the long term um, and really coming along for that ride with us and, you know, really being part of that journey. Uh, I think people have to kind of see that long-term vision and really buy into it and believe in it um, and, and see the difference they're making, actually. I think that can make a huge difference to people when you're actually seeing that the work you're doing has purpose. Um, you can feel the effect of it. And, you know, we still move very quickly as a company. You can see the effect of the work you're doing. Uh, I think they're real sort of bonuses for us that we're able to offer an environment like that um, and give people a lot of autonomy to be able to work from a technical perspective within that remit. Yeah, uh, especially you founded the business, co-founded the business. You've obviously been fully regulated in that process, amassed some serious amounts of funding. You've grown extremely well. You've obviously delivered a great product to your customers and you've got some great engineering challenges that we're going to touch on. So 
I think you and the team really, really need to give yourself some credit because Marshmallow has been a business that engineers, artifacts, we followed for a period of time who've done phenomenally well, who have a great name in the industry. Oh, thank you. Really appreciate that. I think um, look, we, we've been lucky to have some really fantastic people past, present working here. Um, I think, you know, we couldn't have done it without them. And, and the people is really what makes, um, I think, this business so enjoyable to be part of. Um, I think, as you say, um, things do change, they evolve. And the challenges we had, you know, at the, the beginning are different to where we are today. Um, I think we're really pleased and, and proud of ourselves from the perspective of being into a in a situation where we're now profitable. Um, and I think, you know, that's that's a great thing to be able to say in these economic conditions. I think that um, also to be able to kind of know that we've actually helped hundreds of thousands of customers find a product that fits their needs um, and helps them in, you know, as we touched upon earlier on, in a time of actually challenge and change for them. They've perhaps moved country, they're in a different situation, maybe they've just got low credit score, whatever it is, these things affect people's lives and their ability to be able to go about their lives. Um, and actually to be able to save people hundreds of pounds on their insurance um, is very meaningful for them. Um, and to do that for hundreds of thousands of people, I think that does feel very rewarding. To be profitable, you know, at, you know, the stage of business of where you're at with is just phenomenal, is just absolutely phenomenal. So really well done. Really well done. It, if I was to come in and sit alongside Marshmallow's technology team, what kind of engineering challenges do you think that are here be spoken about? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I mean, there are numerous. Obviously, we've got lots of different teams focused on different domains and areas. I think, you know, for us, um, there's a lot of challenges at the moment around how we evolve our claims offering uh, and how we make that uh, much more customer centric. So I think we're certainly looking at the user experience side of that and how we can give people much more deep insight into where their claims are. And, you know, that, that involves a lot of kind of data transformation, a lot of data shipping between different systems, um, being able to leverage the data in the right way, uh, making predictions about when things are going to happen. There's, there's some real challenges around that. Um, I kind of touched briefly upon fraud earlier, but I don't want to understate that fraud. So it's a hard problem. The fraudsters are smart and they, they evolve, they do new things, and we're constantly having to evolve with that. Um, and fraud's a really important big piece. It's, it's not easy. Um, you know, there's a lot of um, predictions around different behavioral things, around different um, ways people try to get around fraud protections. Um, there's a lot of data involved in that as well, which gives you some latency and scale challenges um, and the right way to structure that data. When you're talking about a database that have you know, billions of nodes in, um, in terms of different data points about how people might have quoted um, and what the links between those sorts of quotes might be, um, that really does give you some challenges around the way you can do that quickly, efficiently, um, reliably. Uh, to be able to give back quotes with accurate prices, with low fraud risk. Um, you know, that's not an easy thing to do. So there's some constant um, attention towards that. Uh, I think, you know, from a pricing perspective, we're always looking for new ways to better understand our customers as well. So I, I, I kind of speak a little bit about the fact we don't want to be painting as average broad brushstrokes kind of thing. We're trying to understand people on a bit more of a unique bespoke level about their individual circumstances. Um, and, you know, doing so requires perhaps some different thinking about the data points you use to price and, and assess the risk of someone um, and the data sets you use to do that. So we're always looking for new opportunities to leverage new data sets or look for new trends in data that can help us do that. 
um, which again is, is not an easy thing to do. So we're, we're trying to kind of make sure that we've got um, the right kind of models in place, the right people in place, the right analysis in place to be able to make all of these predictions, to do that in a timely manner. Um, and ultimately actually, you know, really once you work all of that through to the point of someone buying a policy, then providing that great customer experience afterwards, whether that be interactions through our apps or them speaking perhaps on live chat to one of our customer service team, um, you know, their renewal, making a change to their policy, whatever it might be, um, you know, trying to make all of those interactions as delightful as possible. Yeah, good. Okay. And talk to us a little bit about the growth of Marshmallow. And if people are listening and they're super compelled, which they should be by some of what we've spoken about today, talk to us a little bit about the growth of the business and the technology team and where you might be hiring over the next six to 12 months. Yeah, sure. I think we're really doubling down on um, trying to grow the, the UK car insurance business that we have. Um, as I said, we're, we're pleased that's that's profitable, but we need to make sure that we can continue to sustain that and, and grow that. Um, you know, we're really happy to have helped hundreds of thousands of customers, but there's so many more to help. As I said, there's sort of more, more than 8 million um, people in the UK who move from abroad. Then you can broaden that out into people with low credit scores or, you know, students or people that just have situations which make them maybe not best suited to other car insurers. Um, there's a long, long way to go, basically, for us to help there. And I think we've got a lot of work we want to do around our, our claims experience. Um, so, you know, these are very important things to us. Um, it will take it will take many years to continue to pursue that mission, which is what excites us. It's something for us to continue doing um, and really shoot towards. Um, I think there are a lot of technical challenges along the way there as well. So I think there's some really interesting sort of high volume data challenges. Um, we've got challenges around how we start to use um, more AI and ML around the business. Um, I think that you know there's a, there's a lot around how we would actually continue to evolve the ecosystem. I mean, I can actually talk a tiny bit more in a second about some of the perhaps um, challenges we have technically about the way that our microservice systems have evolved. Um, but I think that th these are real big challenges. They're very meaningful for people. They'll really improve user experience. They'll help drive down cost. Um, and that will help us serve more and more customers and just continue to hopefully um, take more market share and grow um, and you know do so in a sustainable way. Um, I think that'll put us in a really strong position in future. And um, yeah, hopefully people can really see the value of providing that to, to people. Like, I don't understand how much difference it actually makes to people. I think it's so actually humbling to talk to real customers who have shared some of their experiences with us. And when you actually try to empathize and put yourself in that situation of just like being in that new place, perhaps not expecting the insurance to be so much and really having to question, can I even afford a car at this point? Um, when you really think that perhaps you played some role in helping them achieve that and being able to go about their life, it makes a huge difference for them. Um, and yeah, I don't think that can really be understated how much impact we, we hopefully can positively have on people if we execute our mission well. Yeah, good for you. Good for you. Uh, and I think for people listening, anyone listening, really in truth, there's there's a serious team here who have an incredible social mission, really, um, to improve situations for people going through, you know, insurance experience. Please do touch on that microservices situation or, you know, how that's evolving because you know, I, I want to try and understand that as well for users. 
No, absolutely. Look, I think that when I think about some of the maybe my biggest learnings or challenges that I think we faced over the years, you know, I think maybe like any growing, scaling startup, scale up, um, I think you obviously go through a lot of change, a lot of reprioritization. You also have to really look in the mirror hard and face the fact of some of the decisions you might have made earlier on, um, you know, where perhaps there was more constraints around, you know, how much funding and runway do we have and speed to market and all of these things. And, and those things remain important. But like, I guess, you know, particularly at the beginning, you're perhaps making technical decisions that you know aren't going to scale forever and do need addressing. You know, you need to go back and look at these things. Um, so I, th that isn't the learning. I think that that's very obvious. And I think lots of people have that. Um, I think that for me, one of the things that I perhaps underappreciated was just how much um, the incumbent domain knowledge of the people in those teams really matter. Um, I think, you know, when you look at the cognitive load engineers face when they're thinking about the business domain they're in, the technical complexity mm. of the market services they're running or any, te any technical ecosystem they're running, um, you can't actually underestimate how much the domain knowledge of those teams really matter. Um, you know, we've been through situations where we've pivoted teams to look at other things or we've transitioned them to look at other opportunities, you know, to, to really maybe had a challenge around some part of customer experience or we really wanted to improve part of our fraud ecosystem or we've needed to kind of, I don't know, you know, add, add some sort of new add-on offering that might be breakdown cover or windscreen cover or whatever it might be. Um, where we've sort of pivoted people away from what they were originally doing. Um, I think one of the big learnings to me is just how important it is to try to maintain that domain knowledge, um, which might sound like a really obvious thing to say, but I just don't think you can actually appreciate how difficult it is until you actually sort of lose some of that when you see people move off to other areas of the business and start focusing on other things. If you haven't taken a smart approach to how you're going to kind of share that domain knowledge, perhaps by a kind of growing the team sort of a bit more organically first before you kind of look at splitting the focus and having a group of people kind of keep maintaining these parts of the system. Um, you know, I think it really is actually quite painful when you don't do that. And I hope we've learned that lesson. You know, I, I certainly feel like I've learned it. Um, but I think that it's just one of those things until you experience it and live through it. Um, I think it's quite hard to understate how difficult it is for new engineers to come into this brand new space and kind of pick things up and we, we invest quite a lot now particularly in trying to make sure that the sort of barrier to onboarding and upskilling is, is hopefully as low as possible we take it very seriously to make the developer experience as good as we can um, you know we do have people focus on devx here at marshmallow and we we look at sort of surveying our users trying to make sure we understand what what their pain points are in software development here in engineering um, and we try to address those but i guess i'm just saying kind of like even with all of this effort, it's kind of you really do have to appreciate how important the cognitive load of the work people are doing is and trying to understand the, the complex domains that they're in uh, matters so much. Yeah, that, I think that's a really valuable lesson. Honestly, I, um, I don't underestimate just how much that domain knowledge is needed, because I think, you know, referring back to you know what you'd said maybe five minutes ago or so just really getting a good understanding for how valuable the business has been for customers you know have going back to then the domain knowledge of engineers and you know understanding what they're building for their customers or just a particular part of the business i think is yeah, I I do think that is incredibly valuable. You know, you can translate that to 
other industries, you know, if you're building a video streaming service, if you're building a trading service, maybe for your customers, really understanding nuances in there and why that's so specific to your customers, it makes total sense. It makes total sense. And it's, it's good to see that you've evolved with that. You've understood it and now actually introduce something for the business. That means people coming in, they can be upskilled they can have a great onboarding experience which i think is really key for any for any business really in truth yeah i think that the, the difference between having you know an engineering team who are you know super engaged who are very very productive um and able to kind of really focus as much of their attention as possible on new value creation as opposed to too much kind of maintenance overhead and just dealing with you know perhaps the cost of lots of tech that you failed to pay back. I think, you know, if you can continue to tackle that problem and try and make sure that people can get themselves into a place where the, the systems are, are well built, they're reliable, they're well maintained, the code is easy to understand and, you know, um, the services interact very well together, are well tested, et cetera. I think um, the, the closer you can get to achieving that, um, the better really for, for having engaged productive engineers who can really actually just deliver more for the business as a whole. Um, you know, it sometimes feels a bit slower along the way. It's the illusion, I think, of moving a bit more slowly. You might feel in the moment um, until you take that sort of slightly zoomed out macro view, you realize how much faster it is to actually work that way. Yeah, absolutely. I, I want to say a big thanks for coming to join us. I know that there's some really, really interesting things going on at the business at the moment, which no doubt if you continue in the same vein, um, you will absolutely smash through and hit some of your goals. But it's a mission that I can align to. Loads of people listening will be able to align to. The London tech community is so vast, but it's full of such diverse people that no doubt can relate to this situation. Um, so I'm looking forward to seeing how the community and some of our subscribership react to this one. Obviously, a massive thanks for taking some time out of your really busy day to come and share about what you guys and girls are building. Good luck for everything in the future. And we'll have to revisit this in 12 months and see how the business has evolved. For everyone listening, likes, shares, subscribe, come and listen to the Marshmallow journey. There's going to be careers sites and everything else included below for you to check out. Um, what they're hiring for over the coming weeks, months, and David's LinkedIn profile, so you can reach out to him and follow their journey or follow David's journey in particular. David, like I said, a massive thank you. Oh, thank you, Elliot. It's been a real pleasure. I'm really happy to be here, and uh, thanks for having me on. Absolute pleasure. Hey, guys. Thanks for watching this episode. Uh, massively appreciate you listening and checking in with us. If you want to find out more about us and what we're doing, please check us out on social media. What we're trying to do at Engineers is build a community to drive knowledge, sharing and experiences. On Twitter, we can be found at engineers.io. It's no underscore. We've also got a website, which is engineers.io. These links will all be posted in the description. Any feedback and comments are massively appreciated. We're always looking to improve on where we can. Thanks, guys.